Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing you are glorious and mighty and holy and just. You are kind and pure and perfect and loving and merciful and gracious and patient toward us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who dwells within those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior. Thank you for the meat that you give us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that sustains our soul and gives us hope in the midst of difficulty. Help us this morning to yield ourselves to you, to allow you to have your way in our lives. May we reflect your character by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I saw a video that one person had titled, or entitled, Who Will Save Us From These Saviors? And in this video, it has three scenes. Scene number one is a couple of EMTs putting a person on a stretcher and putting them in the bed of a truck, and the truck taking off, going around a corner, and the stretcher sliding off the truck, one of the EMTs falling over and then sprawled all over the street. That's scene one. Scene two is a couple of EMTs bringing a person on a stretcher into a hospital. As they take the corner, the whole stretcher goes tumbling down. The person crashes into the doorframe. Not a pleasant thought. And then the final scene of this small video was an EMT in a hazmat suit headed toward the the aid of a, of a person in need of help, and they've got their hazmat suit and their stretcher, and they trip on something, and right down on top of this poor, needy human, who's going to save us from the saviors, is the concept. Well, this type of scene is what we see in Galatians chapter 2 in a far more serious um, and real-life situation. Look at verse 11 of Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now the argumentation goes further, and we'll address that next week. Our discussion this morning, our study, our meditation, our worship in the word, is in verses 11 through 14. Why was Paul so willing to engage with Peter in this matter? Of all the things that, will, that we are willing to stand up and defend, the truth of the gospel should hold first place. Remember, when we think about what the gospel is, the gospel tells us and teaches us the character and nature of God. We understand who God is, as we understand the gospel, the good news that he has delivered and executed. When we are standing up for the gospel, we're really standing up for God himself and his character and his nature. 
This short section that we look at this morning teaches us three more truths related to the gospel, and we're going to get right to it. The first of these truths is this. Our conduct can contradict the message of the gospel. Our conduct can contradict the message of the gospel. Now, as Paul displays this, as he brings this up, he says, Peter, you, Peter was acting in a certain way under certain circumstances, and then someone came, someone of note, someone of prominence, someone of religiosity came, and his behavior changed. In the process of this, he's contradicting the gospel, and it says in verse 14, I saw that their conduct, Peter's, as well as other Jews, as well as even Barnabas, being carried away, their conduct was not in step with the gospel. It was not in accord with the gospel. So our, our discussion this morning really focuses on this concept of staying in line with the gospel. There are two ways that our conduct can contradict the gospel, or at least two main ways that our conduct can contradict the gospel. First of all, we can neglect its power. We can neglect its power. Remember this, the gospel changes us. The gospel changes us. When we act as though we've come in contact with the gospel and it does not make any impact whatsoever, it doesn't change our thought patterns, it doesn't change our speech patterns, it doesn't change our behaviors, something's wrong. The gospel changes us. Take a look at a, a number of passages. We're going to slowly move our way through this. Just for your information, most of our time is going to be spent on point number one. Okay, then we're going to just quickly deal with points two and three, so don't get worried when we're still on point number one for 15, 20 minutes, because that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time is in this first concept. Take a look at Romans chapter one, a very familiar passage about the gospel. Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 16, Paul writing to the church at Rome, and he writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto or for salvation. And who is that for? To everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Verse 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or another version would render it to from faith to faith, from saving faith to living faith, as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. We don't just proclaim faith in Christ unto salvation. Faith in Christ is our daily walk. And when the, the gospel enters into our world and we embrace the gospel, it has this impact of changing us. Follow further along with me in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There are two ways that our conduct can contradict the, the gospel. First of all, we can neglect its power. We're still considering that first way that we can contradict the gospel with our conduct. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's a beautiful passage. He's talking about how the Corinthians are, a, are really Paul's letter of commendation. His, his ministry was demonstrated in that as he gave the gospel, God changed the lives of the Corinthians. He says, you're my letter. And so you are a letter of commendation. He goes on to talk about how um, that in, in the, the old covenant that we received, Moses 
received the law, and, and in the process of receiving that glorious law, his face shone. His face was shining. Verse 7, he says, Now if the ministry of death, that's a reference to that Old Testament law, if the ministry of death carved in letters of, uh, on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's talking about this new covenant and how that new covenant carries an even greater glory than the glory that Moses revealed, which changed his face. Verse 9. <coughs> Excuse me. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, meaning the, the new covenant that comes brings the righteousness that it calls for, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in its glory. So he's talking about this, this glory that comes with the new covenant. Now look down at verse 14. But their minds, Old Testament Jewish people, People reading the Old Covenant without the Spirit, without reference to Christ, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord the veil is removed. So, so now, instead of seeing it only as this old covenant and, and, and as a letter of condemnation, we recognize, we start to see the, the reality of Christ there, and it does something different. Verse 17, Now the Spirit is, uh, excuse me, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, we're not reading with a veil on any longer, beholding the glory of the Lord. Where are we seeing this glory of the Lord? In the text of Scripture or in the Gospel. We behold the glory of the Lord. We are being what? Does it say we're transforming ourselves? What does it say is happening? We are being transformed. Who's doing this? God is through the Word and the Spirit. We are being transformed. We're being changed into the same image. What image? The glory of the Lord image that we see on the pages of Scripture. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The gospel changes us. Friend, don't say you've embraced the gospel and everything in your life is just the way it was before you came in contact with it. That is not how the gospel works. I'm not telling you, go change your record. Go change your behavior. Start talking a different way. Start living a different way. I'm not asking you to do that. You can't. The gospel does that. So if there's no change, what does that mean? The gospel has not been embraced because the gospel transforms us. The gospel changes us. We can neglect uh, the, the gospel's power. Our conduct can contradict the, the message of the gospel and that our lives are not changed. Take a look a little further at this. Philippians chapter 1. One of the charges that Paul gives to this church in Philippi has to do with their lives demonstrating the gospel that they preach. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel or in line with with the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, am I, or I am absent, I may hear of your, excuse me, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side 
for the faith of the gospel. In other words, he's saying in your, in your lifestyle, in your conduct, in your way of life, in your ministry together, you're side-by-side, side, not face-to-face -face contrasting one another, side-by-side, side, moving forward for what purpose? Striving for the faith of the gospel. The gospel changes us and it impacts our character and our conduct. Take a little further at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Now notice, it, when, when Philippians was written, it was approximately three years before the death of the Apostle Paul. Three years approximately before his death. And here, as we cut into the middle of Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read from verse 12 right to the end of the chapter. Uh, we want to notice that Paul, three years before his death, is letting us know he's not God yet. He's not Christ yet. Not every element of his life is fully uh, yielded to the point where, where Christ is seen in all of these elements of his life. Now, I'm not saying he's going to turn into God, so don't misunderstand my statement that I made. But he's saying, I have not attained unto this full measure. Beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in any way you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, Philippians... Our citizenship, Cornerstonians, our citizenship, believers, is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subdue all things, even this thing, to himself. You see what he's telling us here? The gospel does change us. Now, we're not where we're going to be. We're not where we're going to be. At the same point, he's telling us there should be the conduct of the gospel represented in such that other people can see us and follow it. And there are elements and ways that we can think, ways that we can speak, and ways that we can act that contradict that very message, which is why Paul says, and there are these guys over here. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They mind Earthly things. That's what they're all about. They're about the earthly. Our conduct can contradict our message. The gospel changes us. When we are displaying our old man, we are contradicting the message that we proclaim. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the fact that I have received Christ's righteousness. He's made me one with him. He's uniting me together now and forever without any interruption from now and into the future. The life that we live should, should demonstrate that. It should be there. 
we can contradict the gospel with our conduct. There's a second way that we can contradict the gospel with our conduct, and, and that is the more, uh, more to the point in the book of Galatians, verse, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Because you'll recognize, as we've looked at Galatians chapter 2, there was one sample that was a violation of the gospel, and that is that some people had, had sneaked in to spy out their liberty, and in the process of that sneaking in to spy out the liberty, they said, Titus, Titus should be circumcised. That was one illustration of holding a standard that, that would, in, in the, that religiosity person's mind, that religious person's mind, that would make him in a better standing with God. Now here we have another illustration, and that illustration is Peter ha had come to the place where he learned that, that it was okay to, to, to eat whatever. All flesh. We're going to get to that in just a minute. And in the process of, of his changing his practice in accordance with the truth, peer pressure came in. And the fear of the circumcision party came in. Because he didn't want someone to think ill of him. Friends, don't, don't act in a certain way because of the way you think some human being is going to think about you. That, that's not the standard. The standard is my relationship with Christ. How is the Spirit teaching me? How is the Spirit guiding me? How is the Spirit filling me and leading me and, and employing fruit in my life? How is that going on? That's, that's the one area that we need to be concerned about, not fearing the circumcision party or, or this group of people that want to hold us to some standard that is extra-biblical. Here's Peter's problem. He's, he's, he's struggling here. The second way that we can contradict the gospel in our conduct is when we neglect its sufficiency. When we neglect its sufficiency, we're saying it's not enough. It's not enough. There's something more. There's something better. Take a look with me at a couple of passages of Scripture on this. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, God's Word says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of, what's that say? His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which he blessed us in the Beloved. Another way you could read that is he accepted us in the Beloved. He is pleased with us in the Beloved. Or you could even read it this way. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us in the Beloved. You see how that reads? Our standing with God is always tied to that gracious favor that comes from God through the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The gospel is sufficient. I don't need to add to it with circumcision, Galatians 2, 3 through 5, essentially. I don't need to add to it with dietary restrictions, Galatians 2, 11 through 14, or even with the way that I associate with people, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. The gospel is sufficient of its own accord. Look at chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Again, a familiar passage of Scripture. Again, speaking to the sufficiency of the gospel. In verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is, what is the gospel? It's a gift. 
The gospel is a gracious endowment from God. I cannot earn it, not before and not after. It's paid for by the finished work of Christ. And his salvation that he offers us is complete. Did you know that? It's complete. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to cut right into the middle of this because there's just one verse that just shines to, to bring this point to the forefront. Verse 10 of Colossians 2. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, I think I would submit to you a better rendering of the word filled is complete. You have been made complete in him. The word there is plerao in the Greek, which can be filled, is translated filled in some places, as well as this concept of completeness. And what I want to point out to you is that it is in a particular tense. It's called the perfect tense. They add a little P-E to the beginning of it, or a pi epsilon to the beginning of it, and it, and it does something to it. It changes, it changes really the, the fullness of the word. When you make something a perfect tense, it tells us that there's a completed action in the past that has continuing results. So what he says is, you have been made complete in Christ, and that has a continuing result. It stands complete. It's a beautiful reality. Don't miss that from Colossians 2.10. The reality is, when you come to know Christ as your Savior, at that moment, your standing with God is perfect and unchanging. You have been made complete in Him because He is the head of all principality and power. You've been made complete. The gospel is sufficient. And when we, as as we see in this illustration back in Galatians, take a look back there, Galatians 2, when we change the gospel message by adding requirements to it, we undermine the sufficiency of that gospel message. It is not a message of Jesus saves, now clean up your act. Jesus saves, now give up on the drugs. Jesus saves, now quit the alcohol. Doesn't say that. Now, the reality is the gospel changes us and so those things will be dealt with, maybe not instantaneously, but as the gospel continues his work, as God continues his work in us through the gospel, he will deal with those kinds of things that we people term addictions. God will deal with that through the gospel. God changes us through the gospel. But the gospel is sufficient without putting requirements without putting restrictions, without adding to or subtracting from it. And that we learn here in this passage. It says in verse 11 of Galatians 2, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to the face. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. Because he stood condemned. Now, this is not the same condemned as chapter 1. The chapter 1 condemned was anti-gospel opponents, and to them, he wished upon them, this isn't something I would find myself saying, but Paul did, and he was led by the Spirit, anathema, cursed, eternal damnation upon you. That, that's what he says upon those that distort the gospel. 
in chapter 1. He's not saying that here in chapter 2. The concept is far more uh, readily understood that, that Peter was worthy of blame. I withstood him to the face. I stood up man to man to him, and I talked to him straight in the eye. I looked him straight in the eye. I talked to him because his conduct was not in step with the gospel. And as a result of that, he was worthy of blame. This is the concept. Why? What happened? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, here I bring another tense thing to you for your edification. The word was eating is in the imperfect tense. It's also something that is past, but it's something that indicates a continual duration. It's not a one-time event. It's not that Peter went and he sat down with some Gentiles one time and he was eating with them and then these guys came and he was like, oh, oh my goodness. Peter's practice changed. He began to eat with Gentiles. He began to eat with Gentiles like a Gentile. This was a continual concept. It was not a one-time event. Peter's practice had become to act as a Gentile in this area. Why? Why would he do this? Why, as a Jew, would you ever change course like this? Do you remember the vision that he received in Acts chapter 10? We call it the sheet vision. Well, let me just give you a little synopsis of the scene. Here's Peter, and he goes into this trance of some sort, and God lets down this, this, this sheet in his eyes, and on it are, are all kinds of unclean and common animals. And God says to Peter in this vision, Peter, rise! Kill and eat. Now it's a vision. Peter didn't actually say this. It's just a vision. Peter says to God, I can't imagine this, by no means, Lord. (laughs) No, he said. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. This is his response. God responds to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, I'm pretty simple. I'm just thinking, if this is me, like, I'd get that one message and be, okay, Lord, got it. Acts 10, three times it took for Peter to get it. And it's not because he's thick. It's not because he's dense. It's not because he's dumb. Think about your entire life. This is what you believe. You believe that you should not eat this kind because it will defile you in your relationship with God. It'll it'll keep you ceremonially unclean. This is what you've been taught. It's it's everything you know. And and not only is there scripture to back it up, then there's the tradition that packs on top of it. And then then even worse than the tradition that packs on top of it, these people that, that want to put pressure on you on top of the tradition, on top of the scripture. And so Peter's like, no! But God keeps that. Loving Patient, persistent, faithful God. Peter wakes from this dream, and some men come and they beckon Peter to this Gentile, Cornelius. And starting to connect the dots in his mind, he says, Oh, I guess the gospel isn't just for us Jews. The gospel is also for the Gentiles. So he goes and he ministers to Cornelius. Cornelius comes to saving faith. It's a beautiful thing. Finally, Peter understood. He connected the dots. He corrected his practice. But then, prominent law keepers arrive. 
and they give him the stink eye. You know what the stink eye is, don't you? Come on, make your best stink eye. Come on, practice it. You know, you, some of you have a good stink eye. I, I, I can, I, you know, I have to be a little prideful. I have got a pretty good stink eye. I could make my kids squirm with my stink eye. Nonetheless, stink eye uh, aside, the Peter, under this pressure of these prominent Jews, changes back in his practice. Bondage, friends, is difficult to escape. It's difficult to escape the bondage. You know, we, we've, all, we've all had the to-do list, the, the, the do's and the don'ts list, and the, and the I can please God with if I do these things, and I, and, I, and I won't please God if I do these things. We've had all those things our whole lives, and so it's very easy for, for us to relate our relationship with God with whether we do good things or bad things. The gospel changes all that. Our relationship with God is based upon Christ. He's done it perfectly. He never varied. He never wavered perfect. That's what my relationship with God is based on. That's why I can say I'm accepted in the beloved. I am pleasing to God because of Christ. The gospel frees us from this bondage. Now, we're looking at Peter now. Peter comes into bondage, and this is certainly a displeasing event in Peter's life. And, and I think Paul recognizes that what's at stake with Peter's reversion of his behavior What's at the heart of this is the gospel. Can we learn anything, folks, about human nature from Peter's error? Listen to what Martin Luther wrote. After all, it is a comfort to know that even saints might and do sin. Samson, David, and many other excellent men fell into grievous sins. Job and Jeremiah cursed the day of their birth. Elijah and Jonah became weary of life and prayed for death. Such offenses on the part of the saints, the scriptures record for the comfort of those who are near despair. No person has ever sunk so low that he cannot rise again. On the other hand, no man standing is so secure that he may not fall. If Peter fell, I may fall. If he rose again, I may rise again. That's good news. You look at Peter this guy had direct revelation from God. And in that very area of direct revelation from God, he failed. How about me? How about you? Uh, listen, we don't glorify our sin. We don't glorify our fall. We don't glorify our shortcomings. We glorify our Savior. We say, look, in spite of all of my failures, look at him. He's, he's perfect and pure. He doesn't change. He, he loves me. Even as this fallen creature, he loves me. It remains unchanged. This is good news. We look at Peter and we say, well, that's not conduct, becoming of the gospel. It's out of line. At the same time, we say, well, Lord, thank you to, for pointing out that I can err in this way, and I need to be careful. You and I can step out of line with the gospel. We need loving, truthful reminders to stay in line with the gospel. We cannot return to an inferior way of life, whether that inferior way of life be carnality, fleshliness, or religiosity, doing what's really, really good so we think we can please God with it. We can't return to a former way of life. It's, it's about the gospel. This is what Paul reminds us. This is what this failure in Peter's life reminds us. Our conduct can contradict the message of the gospel. Okay, with that being said, we'll move on to the next two truths 
But again, they'll be very brief. Second truth about the gospel. Our contradiction of the gospel can lead others astray. That is a big deal. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews, in other words, there's Peter, and then the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, Paul's traveling companion, as close a friend as you get, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Like it or not, folks, your life is on display to numerous people. Your family has an up-close and personal view. Your church family gets to see whatever you dispense to them. You let them into one, this corner of your life and that corner of your life. You put on the church facade. Your church family gets to see whatever you decide to, to dispense to them. And the people at work gets, get to see the I-need-to-keep-my-job view of you. But everywhere you are, you're on display. Everywhere. It's important that our declaration of the gospel and our demonstration of the gospel remain consistent. When our behavior does not display the gospel proper, pro properly, we should be quick to point it out. Right? Don't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. I'll never forget uh, one night, a number of years back, I can't even remember how many years, but it was a number of years back, I was teaching a men's class, and one of the men was just really abrasive. He was just challenging me, challenging me on every, every point. He just didn't like what we were talking about. He was really getting under my skin, and I lost my mind. Like, I just had had enough. I, I tried, okay, look at this, this, oh, here, uh. Eventually, I, I lost my mind. I was like, that's it, that's it. What, what are we doing here? And, and I lost it. And I left, and I went home, and I sat on my little brown chair. I sat there, just kind of still, thinking, all right, so what am I going to do with my life now? <laughs> um, after reality came back, and, and, a, and a full, clear understanding of life, I recognized my need not only to repent before the Lord, but also to declare this before these men. So I wrote them a letter that very next day, sent it out, and then, of course, we readdressed it again the next time we were together. Listen, why? Why? Why do this? Because our conduct can contradict our message, and as soon as our conduct contradicts our message, the message, while it remains valid and true, the proclamation from this guy has taken a hit. Can't do that. We need to be quick to point it out when we foil the presentation of the gospel with our conduct. We can lead others astray. It's really important. Thirdly, contradiction to the gospel must be confronted. I think that's very clear from this text, doesn't it? Isn't it? Paul said, I opposed him to the face, to his face in verse 11 and verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. He just, he, this had to be dealt with. We can't let the undermining of the gospel go undealt with. When we recognize these things, we, we first must put it through the, the rest of the filter of Scripture, right? And so we recognize when we address this, when Paul addressed this, he had better, by God's Spirit, speak the truth in love, right? He'd better do that. Just to do the right thing in the wrong way is still wrong, right? Doing the right thing in the right way, that's great. Doing the right thing in the wrong way, not so much. In Galatians 6, we'll get there in our study someday, uh, Paul makes this statement, 
and I, and I just, it's, it's one of those that really resonates with my spirit about correcting people. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, or keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The reason I read that wrong, according to this text, is because it's not a, the best translation in this particular portion. That is a participle, keep. It's not a command, keep. It has the force of a command, but a participle should be read keeping. Okay? The reason that that's important is while you are restoring a person in a spirit of gentleness, you are at the same time to be keeping watch over your own spirit, lest you also be tempted. So there's this humility that is there. When the gospel is on the line, we cannot take a cowardly position. When we take the position of confrontation of that which contradicts the gospel, we have to make sure that our spirit is in line with the gospel. And the gospel is gracious. And the gospel is merciful. And the gospel is patient. And the gospel is faithful. These are elements that come with the confrontation or the, the, uh, the correction. Our proclamation of the gospel should be clear and consistent. Our practice of the gospel should line up with our proclamation. When these are out of line, there must be a loving, truthful correction. I think, as we look at verses 11 through 14, I think we see it with that last concept we're talking about. A clear proclamation, a conduct that lines up with that proclamation, and a proper kind of response when it is contradicted. Does that make sense? Hey, listen, this isn't just about the first century. It's about today. Our conduct should display. Our conduct should, should be clear. Our proclamation should be clear. And when we have to contradict someone's gospel witness because of their conduct, we do so straight to their face, and we do so lovingly, humbly, faithfully, consistently. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your kindness. We pray that you would help us to demonstrate your gospel. We know its importance. We know that it is life-changing. We know what's on the line. Enable us to live and preach the gospel clearly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.